Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Well, hello, I'm Dr. Lily Santoro from Southeast Missouri State University, and I'm a colleague of Joel Rhodes, who is here to talk to us about his book, Growing Up in a Land Called Hanali, The 60s in the Lives of American Children. So, uh, Joel, would you mind giving us a brief sketch of your book? Well, what I've really tried to do is examine all of the various social and cultural and political forces between the inauguration of John Kennedy and the end of the Vietnam War to see how those manifested in the lives of pre-adolescent children. So I'm looking at the tail end of the baby boom, those kids that were born after 1956, which have never really been classified as a cohort before. And I'm really curious as to how they, as children, understood the forces, the historical forces that we generally associate with the 60s, and ultimately how they made meaning of those forces based on their particular developmental age, and really how that imprint of the 60s has resonated across their their life, how their unique perspective, which is very distinctive, very different from the older baby boomers, but how their unique perspective on the Vietnam era has really uh, influenced them as adults. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the methodology you use to, to get at this particular population? Well, it, it's a personal story. Uh, obviously, I am a child of, uh, of the 60s and had a very... Uh, very powerful memories of, of being a young person. My, uh, my biological dad was in Vietnam when I was a pre-adolescent and I lived with my single working mother uh, for, for much of that period. And in particular the song, uh, Puff the Magic Dragon, uh, which is part of, uh, of the title, is, is very special to me. And I gotta say one of the coolest things about researching and writing the book is that when it was in press, I had to get permission from Peter Yarrow, of Peter, Paul, and Mary, to uh, to use not only the title of it, uh, "Growing Up in a Land Called Hanalee," but I quote from the from the song quite a little bit, and that ended up being a phone conversation. He wanted to actually talk on the phone uh, about the book, and he he wanted a uh, a copy of the book, a signed copy when it was done, and uh, I said I wanted a signed copy from him too, and he actually signed it uh, from Puff's daddy. Peter Yarrow. So that was a really, really cool part of the uh, of the journey. But anyway, I guess the inspiration of this. I was um, a grad student of Miriam Foreman Brunel, and I guess the first uh, exposure I got to this notion of studying children and childhood and youth was from her book uh, Made to Play House, where she looks at commercial toys uh, in girlhood, and that was that was a pretty important moment in my. Um, I guess my scholarly journey, but then she also introduced me to a book by Bill Tuttle, uh, Daddy's Gone to War, which is an exploration of childhood during World War II, and that really blew my hair back, and um, I, was, I was fascinated by how he looked at a time of tremendous cultural change 
in in the war years, and I thought this really applies to an era that I'm interested in, the Vietnam era. But it took me a number of years to to really get to this project, and Miriam teases me about that periodically that I didn't immediately start this uh, out of uh, out of grad school. But eventually, I was able to justify it because if you look at childhood during the Vietnam era, in particular. There are more kids under the age of 14 in the 60s than there were in the entire country in the 1880s. So I thought, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this study. Okay. Um, and so what are the main arguments that you're making, and what contribution do you think your book makes to our historical understanding of children and childhood? Well, the, the methodology in particular um, was, was fairly challenging because there's a pretty vast literature on the 60s, on the Vietnam era, and all the various sea changes uh, of that uh, of that time. But trying to figure out how these particular changes became changes in the reality of children, and mining down, uh, so to speak, that becomes pretty pretty tricky. And and so I had to pick those those historical forces that. That resonated with children, and you know, an example is with with protest movements in the '60s, which is kind of a hallmark of how we understand that that period. But protest that really doesn't mean anything to children. There are only a handful of instances where children were participants in that or or understood it. So I had to look at um, those those forces that really meant something to children that that impacted that manifested in uh, in their lives. And so, you know, I looked at the Kennedy presidency and not only the you know the inspiration, the the emotion, the emotive relationship between kids and and, and the president, but also um, some of his actual public policies, in particular with handicapped children, the president's council on physical fitness, and it did the same thing with Lyndon Johnson um, and children's attachment to Johnson wasn't nearly as emotional as it was with Kennedy, but you know arguably Johnson's public policies. Changed the lives of children, you know, Medicaid and uh, and a number of those uh, programs as well. But uh, I looked at the civil rights movement and looked at changing constructions uh, of race and and how um, not only children were at the forefront of integration, school integration, and it was usually elementary school mm-hmm. kids uh, that were, but ultimately how it began to change their consciousness about what it meant to uh, to be African American in uh, in this country. And interestingly, the the people that I visited with, uh, for folks that lived in the South, the Civil Rights Movement clearly is the is the most important collective uh, undertaking of the '60s. But children in the North generally, it was Vietnam that they remembered, and so there's a chapter in there also about uh, about Vietnam. And uh, looked at the counterculture and looked at the women's liberation movement uh, as well. And so ultimately, with a little bit of developmental psychology, and I'm, I'm a historian, I'm not a developmentalist, so I guess my work is, is informed by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I was interested in was trying to, to find, as close as I could, the, the, the child's voice in this. And so, so what I did, I have kind of a two-pronged strategy as far as my methods and and I borrowed this shamelessly from from Bill Tuttle and what Tuttle had done is he had sent out a letter to the editor to 
newspapers all over the country um, asking for people's recollections about being children during World War II. And I thought that was probably a, a stroke of genius, and so I duplicated that. And i got to say, my, my task was much easier in the age of the Internet because what I did is I sent out uh, an email, letter to the editor, to probably the five, six, seven biggest newspapers in every state, and I just asked them very generally uh, for people to contact me with their recollections of the, of the 60s. What did they remember about it as a, as a, as a child of the, uh, of the 60s? And i got to say, I was not prepared for the response. I ended up getting slightly over 400 uh, responses from 31 different states, I think. And some people... Some people just sent me sentences, paragraphs. Some people sent me several pages. Some people sent 30, 40, 50 pages. Wow. And so it took me almost an entire year just to begin to catalog all this and to be able to put it in some type of usable format that I could access it and reference it and, uh, and so forth. And then kind of in conjunction with the letter to the editor that I sent out, and I'm still not 100% sure how I feel about this, but I set up a Facebook page <laughs> also. And in hindsight, I shouldn't have called it Children of the 60s. I should have called it Children in the 60s because I got responses from a lot of people who were baby boomers and even some that were, uh, weren't baby boomers that were even a little bit older about their unique uh, perspective on the 60s. But over the course of a couple of years, I got uh, 300 maybe more likes, I guess, people that followed the page. And that was really interesting because I was able to ask very specific questions and then they would have a field day. Uh, nostalgically remembering about TV shows or about whatever. And so I was able to target um, a lot better than with my general recollections. But at least initially I called these oral histories, and they're really not. I mean, they're just self-selected recollections as much as anything else. And from them, I was able to pick a number that I thought were particularly good and conduct oral histories. And I did a couple of... Yeah, a couple of dozen, I guess, actually, you know, formal oral histories over the uh, over the phone, where I was able to to drill down even uh, even deeper, and then to supplement that, not only did I look at several psychological studies that were done and developmental uh, studies that were done during the times, uh, Bill Tull or not Bill Tuttle, William Tully had done a study of how Vietnam impacted children on the East Coast, and of course Robert Coles had done a series of really fascinating studies about children's participation in the civil rights movement. But then to, to kind of try to supplement uh, those, and as much as anything, really mitigate against some of the drawbacks of these, uh, some of these problems in the recollections, I went to the presidential libraries to look at children's correspondence to John Kennedy, to, uh, to Lyndon Johnson. You know, I'm, so far we're not able to access that those types of records at the Nixon Library. There was some unpleasantness there in the in the 70s, and so the, <laughs> the processing of those uh, those correspondence files isn't really up to to where it is in the other presidential libraries. But I I tried to get as as broad a sample of letters that children wrote to the presidents. Um, to, again, to try to, to strengthen the, uh, the sources that I had before. And so what do you think were, how, how do you think your book uh, ch changes our historical understanding of children and childhood? 
Well, I think that the main argument is, and and it's I, I caution that it's it's kind of problematic to to have causal links to look at what happened to somebody in their pre-adolescent years and then point to, well, this is why they vote the way they do, or this is why they are in this political party, or, or whatever. But there are certainly there are certainly moments where you can see that historical forces led to certain transitions in their lives, that it, that it changed their behaviors, changed their attitudes in in certain degree. They incorporated uh, elements of what was happening in the larger culture into their day-to-day -day lives. And war play is is a pretty good example of that. Uh, in particular, the the action figure GI Joe and how, how how children interacted with that in in boyhood. But then there are there are actually some some instances where you can see some tendencies and maybe some consequences um, in, in adult lives that that people can trace back to to those years. And I think probably the most spectacular of those is really the people who became scientists and as much as anything I think science teachers because of the space race because they were so inspired by John Kennedy that it it ignited in them really uh, a love affair with with science and technology and exploration and there are some even more spectacular examples of people who actually did become astronauts who can trace uh, their chosen profession um, to Kennedy's inspiration and the inspiration of the Mercury and Gemini and Apollo uh, astronauts. And I think there, in particular, I can't remember his name, he was one of the uh, shuttle era astronauts who in his oral history speaks directly to the fact that his life's ambition as a child was to be a garbage man because he really liked the garbage man in their neighborhood. <laughs> but then Kennedy makes this bold declaration that we're going to the moon and just the the romance surrounding the Mercury astronauts. He decided at that point, no, astronaut is what uh, is what I want to be. So, so those types of trajectory changes are are really fascinating to to look at, but as much as anything, I think collectively, um, there is a sense amongst this cohort, these kids born after 1956, that they they kind of came late to the party, that they saw older brothers and sisters, uh, and they sound they saw them in the sound and fury of the 1960s, and there was this sense of anticipation that I. Can't wait to get older, you know. I can't wait to, to grow my hair longer. I want to, you know. I like listening to the monkeys on the radio, but I want to listen to the Rolling Stones. I, you know, I want to listen to the Doors. <laughs> and then by the time they got older, the, the culture had moved on, and the Vietnam era was over. And so there's a sense of, oh, I was, I was ready, and then yeah, it didn't happen for me. So it's a sense of being somewhat unfulfilled, and oftentimes because of that. I don't think they fully appreciate that their perspective on the 60s, while different, is is nonetheless valid. Mm -hmm. I mean, they think about, well, I was just a kid in the 60s. I, you know, I didn't really get to experience it. I didn't get to, you know, I didn't go to Woodstock or whatever. You know, I didn't, you know, campaign for for John Kennedy or whatever. But uh, in that regard, it was kind of difficult sometimes to draw out uh, information because they don't really think it's that uh, it's that important. And a lot of times they fail to recognize. Um, just how powerful the 60s were. And a good example of this 
uh, I would ask people about, well, women's liberation. You know, what, what, what can you say? Do you, do, you, do you think you experienced that at all? And virtually everyone's like, no, nah, I never remember mom burning her bra. I never remember mom marching in the streets and everything. But then as you talk to people a little bit, they remember mom being single for a while while dad was in Vietnam. They remember mom being divorced uh, in this huge uh, uh, upsurge in the divorce rate in, in the early 1970s. They remember mom being single and, and working and balancing the checkbook. They remember mom going back to uh, going back to college. They remember reallocation, uh, a reallocation. Pardon me of, uh, of of household chores, and they again don't grasp that they really are are defining. Uh, all of these changes that that uh, we understand as second wave feminism, but they don't really appreciate that because they think women's liberation was about uh, about protesting in the streets. Oftentimes, that's that's kind of interesting as well. But another thing that I noticed, kind of broadly speaking, mm -hmm. is that these kids were socialized in a contested culture, and they were reared in in households and raised by rules and expectations and attitudes that by the time they became adolescents were obsolete and so they were taught one way of living they were taught one set of expectations they really were socialized to one America and by the time they were in high school and became young adults that America really didn't exist anyway anymore, and, the, and that family life didn't exist. This was the last generation of American children raised predominantly in a two-parent family, uh, where dad was the primary breadwinner and mom was the stay-at-home uh, housewife and, and mother. And again, those things really have not played themselves out in their lives uh, the way they were taught as uh, as children. And so being socialized to that contested culture has, I think, engendered a certain ambivalence in, in them that even though if they can't articulate it as such, it, it's certainly there. There's an uncertainty about what their expectations are and what um, what the country's role is. And likewise, they were, they were politically socialized in an era of extreme polarization. Again, I'm, I'm really hesitant to say that you can look at our political culture now in the 21st century and how divided we are and say, well, this was just baked in uh, as children. I don't think you can make that claim. But I think maybe there's something to be said uh, for the fact that they, this generation of, uh, of Americans was raised in a time of extreme polarization, and it's, it's something that they really have never had any experience outside of, uh, perhaps. But as much as anything else, I think it's, you can see the legacy of the 60s and just kind of lowered expectations, um, not so much maybe in, their, in themselves, but lowered expectations certainly of the presidency, lowered expectations about what America's role is in the world, and lowered expectations about the prospect of change and, and how change actually comes about, social change and so forth. So what would you say were your biggest challenges? Well, I think the, the biggest challenge was was how, how representative 
is the sample I have from these recollections because I lean very heavily on them. They're kind of the part of the the foundation of of, of my of my research and and clearly sending out um, these letters to the editor. You know, four hundred does not make an entire representation. I mean, this this cohort's probably fifty six million um, somewhere, give or take. And so, how 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 representative are the are the are, are these people in the sample? But then also, you have to deal with memory distortion, and oftentimes people you know fashion their memories based on the expectations and their experiences. Um, certainly, and so the reliability of those is something that I'm that I'm constantly struggling against. And I've noticed a couple. Um, that's that's one of the primary observations that reviewers make of the book is, you know, you have to understand that this is part of the overall picture. It's certainly not the uh, the entire the entire story. But that for me probably is is the biggest obstacle, other than just trying to figure out how children experienced these things and how they made meaning as opposed to really how adults wanted them to experience these things. And I remember one of the, the, the recollections that I used, I think this, this woman was from Tennessee perhaps, don't quote me on that, but her, her observation was, I wasn't traumatized nearly as much by the 60s as I was by how my parents reacted to the '60s, but again, that's mm. you know that's probably <laughs> something that that a lot of historians of children and childhood would would say. This uh, brings me to my last question, which is, what do you think remains unknown about children in the Vietnam era, or what future research do you think is needed now? Well, I, I think a real I don't want to use the word whole, but I, I think an area in, in this book that I wanted to go into more depth was the experience of African-American children outside of the South. You know, I, I, I covered that ground about the, the Southern phase of the Civil Rights Movement, uh, the integration of, of schools and so forth, but... Really, and I left this open, that the more research needs to be done on how children experience the culture of black power, for instance, and how pre-adolescent children experience the urban rebellions of the, of the late 60s. So I kind of looked at the, the good 60s in regard to the African-American experience, but really did not cover the, the bad 60s, the, 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 the scary 60s. And I think there's probably some fascinating research that can be done um, about um, the influence of black power and the influence in particular of, uh, of these urban riots, of which there are over 300 in the, uh, in the late 60s. And so uh, I think the historians will, will find that uh, very, very interesting. Um, my new book, my new project, which is coming out um, this fall, is uh, a specific look at the war in Vietnam. And um, it's just the Vietnam War in, um, in the lives of American children. And I took what is essentially a chapter from Hana Lee and I just expanded it, uh, expanded it out. And it will be the first um, in the University of Georgia Press's new Childhood uh, and War series. So I'm pretty excited about that. And I got a chance to work with, uh, with Jim Martin. Um, he is the editor of that series and has been really instrumental not only in, in getting that book off the ground but really guiding that uh, the research and writing over the last couple of years. So I think that 
th- that was a big part of it to look specifically at uh, at Vietnam, and you know Vietnam's such a confusing topic. This is this is one little part uh, maybe that will help us understand Vietnam's enduring fascination uh, for Americans, and I think also the enduring pain uh, for for Americans. You know, something that I'm really interested in is Watergate, and at least initially, I thought Watergate would make a good end to to this book. I could go from Kennedy to to Nixon, and methodologically, or methodologically, pardon me that really wasn't possible because we don't have access to those letters uh, at the Nixon Library. I actually went to the Ford Library and tried to look at uh, children's letters about the pardon and so forth. But we have really an incomplete uh, view of how of how Watergate impacted childhood. And I think that observation that I made about lowered expectations, I think Watergate is a, is, is a central facet of that. And so hopefully in the next few years, historians can start to look at how Watergate um, influenced um, attitudes and behaviors of, of children. And then my new project, um, which I'm pretty excited about, uh, I'd like to start to look at and construct a cultural history of Saturday morning television. And so get away from some of the, the heavier subjects of Vietnam and, and rioting and so forth and, and really start to tease out the rituals and the practices of getting up early on a Saturday morning and for one time a week having control of the television all to yourself. <laughs> and uh, really, the like I said, the culture of, of Saturday morning television during what I consider the golden age of Saturday morning television, which is the 1970s. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcast. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.